run into on the internet. You know what I know by what I mean by meme theology? People like complex ideas reduced down to a little square picture with a pithy statement on it, and that's going to communicate all the knowledge that we need. Uh, it, it, it's rampant throughout the political season. You have little memes, uh, and they're very, very effective because they don't really require a lot of thinking. They're just little jabs, and this is what happens with the church and with religion, and in particular with church history. So the only way to really do church history is to study it, so that's what we're doing. Um, I, was, I found a quote that I love, and it's not in your notes, but it's from C.S. Lewis. And this is uh, something famous he said called, it's entitled Chronological Snobbery. And this is what he said. Chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to your own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find out why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted, and if so, by whom, where, and how conclusively? Or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. One of the things uh, that you don't want to do or you don't want to be guilty of is being a chronological snob, which means that you view uh, our own age, our own time as superior Because it's modern. And that is a danger that all of us fall into. So, that's all I'm going to say. Let's get in our notes. And guys, there are notes. Hey, Jen, would you bring in some, a total of two or three, including yourself, for Glenn and Jan? Okay. Let's go through this. I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence. Um... But I'm going to basically go through this and try to explain uh, some things as we go along. So, um, and this is from Mark Nolan, his book. There are four critical reasons uh, to study church history. Number one, the study of history, the history of Christianity, provides an ongoing reminder that the God of the church is not removed from life, but works out his will in the history of the world. <clears throat> there are a lot of things throughout church history that make absolutely no sense. Uh, Things that have happened, things that people have experienced, there are a lot of things. But to be able to look over the general overarching history and recognize that God is at work. If you want to use the, uh, it's not an acronym, but the uh, uh, history is His story. Have you ever heard that before? History is His story. Story, And if you really think about that, what we are saying is God is in charge of history. He is taking us to an ultimate point. Really, the, the faith that we have is that there is a second coming. There is a resurrection. And if we believe that, we believe that God is navigating all of human history to that event. And that means that everything that has come before us has been a part of that navigation. We're just here for a small little sliver of time, 80 to 90 years, and then we're gone. Study of church history, this is number two, uh, provides perspective on the interpretation of Scripture, 
We are going to see throughout this class that Scripture has been wildly different in its interpretation in different settings and in different cultures, which does not mean a thing. It doesn't mean anything that it's been wildly interpreted in different ways. Who cares? What does it mean and what does it say? That is what we are after. That's what we want. To, to be upset or to be frustrated by that fact is to, to become a fundamentalist. Do you know what a fundamentalist wants? Everybody know what a fundamentalist is? Uh, I think we know what it is when we see it. Uh, somebody that lives by a very rigid set of rules, whether they came from God or not. Uh, some of us, a lot of us in here have experience with fundamentalist backgrounds where the rules became more important than anything. And your adherence to the rules. Some of the rules were right and good, but mingled and sprinkled in there was a lot of other things that weren't from God. And so you get into this bondage situation and you've got to live up to this and you can't. And so you're constantly feeling guilty and you're hiding things and you're not, you, you wind up not living for Christ. You wind up living for the, the people in charge of your fundamentalist circle and trying to live up to their expectations. Fundamentalism, what it wants is a very black and white distinctive in everything and it it cannot allow anybody to be a Christian that has a different interpretation. Now, you're not allowed to have a different interpretation on the virgin birth, in my opinion. There, there is a virgin birth. That is an issue of faith. You can't turn that into Jesus was a regular man. Because if you do, and, he, and Jesus had an earthly father and not uh, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and we have a virgin birth... Now we've got a regular human being and not the God-man. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? There are things that we can't uh, compromise on. However, if you don't speak in tongues, that doesn't mean that you can't go to heaven. If you think the mode of baptism should be for infants, that doesn't mean that you're disqualified from the kingdom. If you want to, the adiaphora, the the things on the periphery, we can agree to disagree on and have the central tenets of faith. But the study of church history is going to show you just how wild uh, the differences have been. The study of uh, the church gives us a fascinating glimpse into the way Christians have interacted within their culture. That's going to be really interesting. Uh, and that's been true throughout all of history. We cannot underestimate the power of culture. And the study of the church reveals again and again how God has mercifully protected and increased His church despite the sometimes horrendous abuses of those who call themselves Christians. They burned, Christians burned, the library at Alexandria. Some consider that to be one of the greatest libraries that was ever lost, uh, they burned it. They, they burned it to the ground. And so who knows what we lost in that library? Uh, that's to say nothing of the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, Christians being burned at the stake, non-believers being burned at the stake, war being waged in the name of Christianity. Um, the stuff that has been done in the name of God, is horrifying. And 
one of the important things for us as Christians to do is not pretend it didn't happen, not to make excuses for the horrific acts, and not to also say because a guy who believed in Jesus did this thing, that means believing in Jesus is wrong or bad or leads to those things. They don't necessarily lead to those things. Church history shows us how culture can cause all kinds of weird ideas that branch off into inquisitions and burning of libraries and uh, the consideration that black people are not people. That happened in the history of the church. That, that happened in slavery. How did, how did this happen? How can you read the Bible and get there? Well, people did. So, we're going to look at multiple issues throughout church history, and some of them are unpleasant, uh, to say the least. Some of them are utterly fascinating, the, the, the links that people went to explain what they were doing. Four scriptural principles, and this is coming out of uh, Matthew chapter 28 at the very end where Jesus is departing and he's got uh, information for the disciples. It's called the Great Commission, and this is, this is famous, but this is straight from Mark Knoll's book, and I, it's really, really good. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mark Knoll says that God is sovereign in all, including all experiences and, and events that affect his church. God is in charge of history because he has all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The church continually experiences movement outward to spread the gospel and, the, and movement inward to learn more fully of Christ. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Despite our sin, despite our failings, the church is sustained by Christ-promised presence. That one is in particular precious to me that he is with us. I've got the little quote over here. Uh, from William Tyndale, Christ is with us into the world's end, therefore let his little flock be bold. If God is with us, we have no reason not to be bold, no matter what it costs us to share who Christ is. And throughout church history, you are going to see um, he was burned. <laughs> so you're going to see that boldness does not equal safety. Okay, number four, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The Christian faith enters into and impacts many cultures and the people who inhabit them. The gospel belongs to all cultures. The gospel is not a forcing people into a culture, except if you want to call it a Christian worldview culture. It can go into Asian cultures, it can go into Hispanic cultures, it can go into multiculturalism like America, it can go anywhere and be what it's supposed to be, which is the revolutionary message that God was reconciling the world to himself through his son Jesus Christ, and you can be saved, repent of your sin. Okay, so what is this first turning point? The way that this, the way the book is set up is, there, it is so difficult to condense church history. <clears throat> how do you do it? I mean, how do you take something as broad as 2,000 years of, of history and, and try to sum it up? It, we can't do it. Ken? Sure. 
Yes, Ken, I have noticed this myself, and I am not sure what the answer to that is. Um, I, I think, well, we'll cross that bridge later. But yes, he does say that. <laughs> uh, which is why I called it a fortnight of church history, because it was supposed to be 14. And then I was going through everything, I was like, where's number 14? So yeah, I may be missing something, um, and I'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but the way the way the book is structured and the way this is structured is to take uh, key moments, turning points throughout church history, and try to look at them as so it's going to be a very high view <clears throat> look at major events in church history. What I hope happens is that you guys want to go home and rent documentaries. Uh, you want to go really read. Books, read original sources, read some of these church fathers that we're going to be discussing. Um, that's what I hope happens, because that will help you tremendously. It really helps you in our modern culture, because there is nothing new under the sun. And you find out, both good and bad, you are not coming up with questions that somebody else has not come up with. In fact, and I say this politely because it involves all of us, and there's some really smart people in this room, uh, we are really shallow in comparison to some of these people who did not have electricity or plumbing or medicine. They had nothing. They had nothing in comparison to us. They would have, they would have been flabbergasted at the Internet. And these people thought so deeply. When you read their words, you're just like, these. when I read Augustine, you're like, this guy, where did he even come up with this? To, he's coming up with questions about things I didn't even know existed. So that's the kind of, so part of what happens when you read, though, it you get deeper in your understanding of, not just our faith in Christ, but really human nature and the world around us. It's really, really good to study church history. This first turning point is the destruction of Jerusalem. It happened in A.D. 70. Um, It was prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 24. He said, this generation will not pass away until this stuff is all torn down. Let's go into that and why that was such a turning point. So keep in mind, Jesus was probably born in about 83, probably. So that would make his crucifixion date somewhere between AD 33 and AD 36. So we are within a generation, um, uh, what, 34 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And... This is really important for what happens. By AD 66, the Jewish people had had enough of Roman mistreatment. There was a revolt in Caesarea that prompted, at this time, the Roman general Vespian to send four legions in response. So, um, there was a bunch of, there was a legal battle that Greeks won in a province they celebrated by attacking the Jewish quarter and killing multiple Jews, and the Romans just sat there and watched it. Didn't care. They got 
They, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. They, there are so many other things here that you can study, but they, uh, they attack, they kill and take over this little Roman outpost. Um, eventually, word gets back to Rome. <clears throat> they send in, and Nero was still alive in AD 66. Everybody's heard of the emperor Nero, burned the city while he was fiddling. Um, Nero sends uh, General uh, Vespian in, and he makes it, not all the way to Jerusalem, but almost to Jerusalem. Uh, And then in AD 68, political things come up because he's going to be tapped as the next emperor, and he knows that. So he goes back to Rome, and he becomes the emperor because Nero has passed away. But he left his son in charge. His son is Titus. And uh, by AD 70, the Roman army had made its way to Jerusalem. They surround it. It's under siege. They starve people to death. The stuff going on in the city is absolutely horrific. We're not going to go into all the details, but it was awful. Um, The suffering that they went through was horrendous, and the city was destroyed. Rome goes in, uh, kills a lot of people, destroys the temple. And I want to read you a quote. Titus destroyed the temple completely. And this is a quote uh, from a Roman historian whose name is Severus. For anybody who remembers Harry Potter, uh, his name was Severus. Um, this, is what he's, this is what he quotes Titus as saying, that he destroyed the temple in order that the Jewish and Christian religion might more completely be abolished. For although these religions were mutually hostile, they had nevertheless sprung from the same founders, The Christians were an offshoot of the Jews, and if the root were taken away, the stock would easily perish. So he was intentional in destroying the temple in AD 70. What does that mean? This is why this event is important. It causes the church to really make a distinction and a separation from Judaism. Now, it was already separate. Christianity was already separate. Paul was using the Jewish synagogues wherever he went, and some of the other preachers were doing the same. They would go into the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath and preach. You can read through the book of Acts and see that was the way that he was doing it. And it was a really easy way to do uh, the preaching of God's Word because he could go through Isaiah, he could go through Psalms, he could go through Daniel and Ezekiel, he could pull Scriptures out and show who the Messiah was was and that he must suffer, he must be crucified and then give testimony to Jesus. And that is what that is how they did it. And uh, so the way that the outsiders looked at the church is it was just a barnacle connected to Judaism. They, they recognized that it was a little different, but to them it was pretty much the same thing. The fall of Jerusalem, the reason why this is such an important event, is it forced the church to be separated from the holy city of Jerusalem because it was destroyed. This is what Mark Knoll says. He says, The great turning point represented by the destruction of Jerusalem was to move Christianity outward, to transform it from a religion shaped in nearly every particular by its early Jewish environment into a religion advancing toward universal significance in the broader reaches of the Mediterranean world and then beyond. F.F. Bruce, also a really great theologian and historian, 
He said, in the lands outside Palestine, the decade which ended with the year 70 marked the close of the period when Christianity could be regarded as simply a variety of Judaism. From AD 70 onward, the divergence of the past of Jewish Christianity and Orthodox Judaism was decisive. Henceforth, the mainstream of Christianity must make its independent way in the Gentile world. So the destruction of Jerusalem, which was horrendous and awful, actually created a launching pad for the church to go all over the place. Now, they were already going into all the world to preach the gospel. But this forced them to not rely on the Jerusalem church. Now, Mark Knoll in the book, if, if you read it, he points out that James, and if you read Acts 15 in particular, they had a council there. They had discussions there when, they, when the Gentiles first became Christians. They wanted to write them a letter, don't eat anything offered to blood, abstain from sexual morality, they, all this stuff. They, did, they, they were trying to figure out how to be this new community of Christians. But when Jerusalem is destroyed, you no longer have the headquarters of the church there because it's, it's totally ruined. So it scatters them. And rather than that doing what Titus thought it would do, weaken them, it actually was the springboard to spread the message all over the world. There's something else um, that I want to mention that was beneficial to Christianity and their connection to Judaism. And that is uh, the religio licita, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, And that just simply meant that they were an approved religion. The Romans had so many issues with the Jews because they were really, really monotheistic. They believed in one God. And the Roman world was just filled, it was pagan, it was just filled with gods. And they had issues with these monotheistic religions, and the Jews were the most, uh, really the only prominent religion that featured one single God. Only one? Like, just one? You don't have one for the garden? You You don't have, what? I mean, just one? And so, yeah, just one. And they became... It wasn't worth it to the Romans to give them any grief over that they, because the Jews were so obstinate in, in that belief that when Christianity began, it kind of went under the umbrella. They were grandfathered in, if you want to say, under the Roman approved legal status. And so for a while, the church was able to do uh, mission work and able to spread the gospel without any persecution. Now that changes very quickly, but it, in the initial stages, uh, they were allowed to do that. There's something else, though, that allowed Christianity to spread as Jerusalem was destroyed. The uh, Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, Rome had established through their dominance a peace which allowed you to travel the roads into all kinds of countries everywhere. And because you were able to do that, And because everybody, because of the Hellenistic influence and everybody was speaking Greek, a common language, which is what the New Testament is written in, uh, the lingua franca is Greek, so everybody speaks it. So it was easy to go preach all over the place uh, and everywhere they went, even though the cultures were different, 
Greek was there. And so they had a, they had a really fertile soil to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. Alright, page 3. So now what? Jerusalem has been destroyed. This is kind of the springboard that gets the church to really go out. What are they going to do? Well, over the next several hundred years, there are going to be three key anchors for the early church. Because when they were piggybacking, so to speak, off of Judaism uh, in the earliest of days and, and meeting and everything was very similar to what was going on in the Jewish synagogue, but the sacrificial system obviously is now replaced in Christ and um, the way the government structure is in the New Testament versus the way it was uh, in the Old Testament with the priesthood. What are we going to do there? Um, and what about Scripture? What, what are we going to do? So that's what the three areas are uh, for, the, for the early church. The first one, and I'm going to try not to get bogged down here because um, this one is really important, is the canon of Scripture. How, how many of you know what that means? What, what is, Rebecca, what is the canon of Scripture? So, you are really close. Really, really close. She's basically right. Um, however, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up, and it's something, that is the answer that I would have given as well. Um, one of the things that I have discovered over the past couple of years about the issue of canon is that our definition, and the one you gave, is primarily Catholic. It is a Catholic Church's definition of what canon is. And the, and the, the sneaky thing about that is um, that what they're actually saying is you can't have a Bible unless you have a church that gives it to you. And you can't have a perfect Bible unless you have a perfect church to give you a perfect Bible. Therefore, all of your sola scriptura stuff... The Bible alone is nonsense because you had to have a church give it to you. And guess who that church is? It ain't Celebration Church. It's us, the Catholic Church, that has been here as the bulwark of the faith for 2,000 years. And if you've never had an argument with a Catholic, then 
But that is their, de- their definition of canon. And here's something that I did not realize. But if you look at the second bullet point, it was not until the 1500s that an actual official decree of what the Catholic position on canon was, was established. It wasn't until then. And the only reason it was is because of Martin Luther in the Counter-Reformation, which we are definitely going to talk about. Okay, so that's going to be one of the things we talk about. But the only, the, they did not come up with an official list of books uh, until the 1500s. That's really mind-blowing. Because, and you mentioned the Council of Nicaea, and that is where I had always understood, yeah, the Council of Nicaea, that's where they figured out this and that and this and this. But in reality, it, it wasn't. Uh, in reality, uh, the earliest... We've got stuff from the second century showing lists of, of books that were accepted, and those lists do not match up with what we've got in our Bible now. So this is how I could get bogged down on canon, because when you start talking about this, everybody's like, well, how did we get, what did, how did we get it? How did we get the canon of Scripture? So, um, do you see the very bottom under canon? Do you see the quote that I have from Michael Kruger? Books do not become canonical. They are canonical. They are Scripture. That's what canon means, the standard. They are canonical because they are the books God has given as a permanent guide for His church. In other words, if a book is from God, it is therefore canonical. It is Scripture. If God breathed it, then it is Scripture whether I acknowledge it or not. Does that make sense? Whether I believe it's Scripture or not, it is. Because, because God's breathed it out. So the book that Paul wrote to Ephesus is Scripture because it is God-breathed. Not because the church said that it was, was but because God did it. Now, there's still a problem. The church, somewhere, somehow, people have to accept what God has said. And so, and really, this is such a big question, and honestly, to try to sum this up in five and ten minutes is nearly impossible. This, this guy here, who is one of the leading scholars now on this very topic, has written two books, The Question of Canon... Um, and uh, Canon Revisited, where he really goes into a lot of detail over how exactly did the church come in possession of the Scripture and how did we acknowledge it. And basically, it's more organic than a council. Ken? There's the, and that's a good point. They did not come up with that until the 1500s. So, there were a lot of disputes over which books were canonical and which weren't. 
But what you see from the early church fathers, and, and um, Ignatius is one, and uh, Polycarp, and there's writings, the Didache, and there's the Shepherd of Hermas, and there's different writings that are floating around in that uh, first and second century. And they're quoting from the Gospels. They're quoting from other portions of Scripture. And what you begin to see, and this is the organic answer, is you, you begin to see that these writings were considered super important. They were already being considered as Scripture. In fact, the, what I wrote down um, is... Uh, where'd it go? Canon as a process of reception. In other words the church receiving what God has said. Um, that really begins in 2 Peter 3.16, which is where Peter says, Paul has written hard things to understand, and these people that are evil are twisting what Paul said to their own destruction, just like they do the other Scriptures. So Peter is attributing Paul's writings to equal to the Old Testament Scripture. In, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 16, when he says they twist the Old Testament Scripture and they twist, Paul's script, they twist what Paul's saying just like they do the other Scriptures. So this idea of what Paul is writing to the church, which Peter says is hard to understand some of it, so Peter who walked with Jesus is saying... I don't even get some of this stuff. I mean, some of the stuff he's saying in Romans, I'm not sure I understand it. Now, that's not what he said, but you read through, if you want a difficult book, read through Romans. Um, your hair will turn sideways as you try to get it all. And that process of receiving God's Word for the church began there. But this process, and gosh, this is a really... This is a topic all into itself. It'd take forever. But this, this process of the church receiving God's Word and recognizing it, and there were some tests, and Rebecca alluded to that and is correct. Some of the tests were, how is it connected to the original apostles? Is there a connection to the original apostles? So if you remember when I started the series on Mark, one of the, the connection that Mark has to an original apostle is Peter. So um, it's not the Gospel of Peter, uh, it's, it is the Gospel of Mark, and scholars believe it was probably dictated in a lot of ways, or it was a retelling of the stories from Peter's point of view, because Mark was with Peter quite a bit. But the very first mention, so this kind of answers your question, Ken, the very first mention of the canon that we have now, the 66 books in your Bible was Athanasius in AD 367. So we're, what, almost, it's 300 years later that we have the list that was accepted by the church at this point. There wasn't a council that like put a stamp on it, but there, it was universally accepted and they began saying more and more, this, these are the books. These are the recognized books so the church, it's not wrong. The Catholics are not entirely wrong in what they're saying. The church did recognize the books as being from God. 
but there wasn't an official declaration from them until after the Reformation, and that was, an, that was a result of the challenge that Martin Luther and the Reformers brought to them. I recognize this, this is a topic that we could spend a lot of time on, but for the purpose of this, <clears throat> of this class, what we are trying to say is that the church needed something to go by. And, and they had to have something for the faith and practice of this new religion, this new faith that said Jesus has come to the earth as the Son of God and He's been raised from the dead and He died for your sins and the Holy Spirit has changed your heart. Now, what are you going to do with that? Well, for a long time, they were able to have church and baptisms and the Lord's Supper They were able to do all of that. They would get together and worship. There were people dying for the faith. And they did not have the 66 books that I have in my Bible. And the 47 translations at my fingertips at home or on the internet. They they did not have what we had. A lot of them had just fragments. Letters were being circulated throughout all the churches. As persecution starts ramping up, you, you got killed for being in possession of them. They had to hide them. A lot of times the way that people renounced their faith was turning over the Scripture that they had. So, so what you see in the process of canon is, I, I, it is, and I get this largely from Michael Kruger, it is an organic process that takes a long period of time that the church is recognizing what God has said to it. And it's all over the place. It's, uni- it's universally recognized. It was not a singular pope or a council that put some seal of approval on it, that happened way later. The canon of Scripture was necessary for faith and practice of the church, and it connected the church correctly and properly to its roots, which is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is quoted over and over and over in the New Testament. It is a part of Scripture, and Jesus viewed it that way. So you can't get rid of the Old Testament and say that it's invalid or not good because Jesus said not one jot or tittle of this will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. So the, they, they rightly... And you've got to think, how hard would this have been? What would this have been like to, to, be, to be some... Roman or some barbarian from the north that came to faith in Christ and then they're telling you that there's this other set of scriptures and and it goes into this religion in Palestine but that is where your Lord and Savior sprung out of and there's a lot of stuff in there describing what he did. By the way, we've got a letter to the Colossians and we've got a fragment of the Gospel of John and that's all we got. And that's what we got to go with. And that's all they ever had. It was just a completely different scenario uh, for, these, for, these, for these folks. And it is incredible how God, over just really a short period of time in church history and just history of the world, brought together um, the Scriptures into the churches and did it under persecution and that the gospel spread like wildfire and turned the world upside down.
Um, it is really one of the reasons to have faith is to see what God did and the way that he did it. Um, so that is one anchor. And that, that, uh, that process took a while before Athanasius in AD 367 is where you really see the, the recognition of the books that we've got now. The second anchor is the episcopacy, the governmental structure of the church. Um, the letters to Timothy and Titus as well as Acts show the church organized under bishops, deacons, presiding officers and elders. There's different Greek words for all those. And right off the bat, I will tell you that people disagree because uh, some people see bishops, presiding officers, and elders, even though they're different Greek words, as the same thing. Um, some people don't. Some people think these are all split up into different categories. Um, but they are, in the New Testament, given specific tasks and their specific qualifications in order to be one of them for leading the church in worship and service. But by the end of the second century, the church had begun to view bishops as a regional office with a hierarchical administration. In other words, they started referring to the bishop of, and then fill in the blank geography, the bishop of Rome, the bishop of uh, northern Africa, which was Athanasius, by the way. Uh, they, they start creating regions with a hierarchy, like an org chart at work. Uh, Mark Knoll, who is an evangelical, he is not a Catholic, even though when, if you get his book, you'll see he teaches at Notre Dame. So I don't know how that all, or he used to. I'm not sure how that all worked. But um, uh, anyway, he, he says, this view is unknown in the New Testament, but you can definitely see it in the early church writings. So one of the issues with church history is, is uh, what do you do when there's stuff going on that you don't agree with? <laughs> well, you just you still use the Word of God as the plumb line, but it, we have to recognize that what began to happen uh, over the next couple hundred years is bishops rise up in importance and become super powerful individuals. And they have a hierarchy and a structure under them. Historians agree that uh, that order in the early church grew out of the Jewish roots, where, for example, synagogues had functioned under elders, or pre- should say, or presidents. All are also agreed that the Episcopal organization of the church represented a striking move beyond Judaism. The next sentence is where I wanted to go. Catholic and Orthodox Christians tend to view the rise of bishops as a, ne- as a necessity in order to establish apostolic succession. Their use of the phrase, the episcopate slept in the apostolate, reflects this belief. In other words, Catholics and Greek Orthodox or Russian or Eastern Orthodox, um, which we will talk about where that split happened between the Catholic Church and what, became, what has become known as uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, they view this development with the rise of bishops in power as something that was essential, something that God intended, and that's the way it was meant to be. Ultimately, following a line of apostolic succession, 
And, of course, according to the Catholic Church, that goes all the way back to Peter, the first pope, and, and all of there's a lot there. And you can go into church history and see that that idea began within the first couple hundred years. Now, if you go into some of the uh, first century writings, um, you will find out that there's also evidence um, that there were people in churches having a plurality of elders, meaning there were just multiple elders in churches. And when I read the New Testament documents, that's what it sounds like Paul is instructing Timothy to do. Establish elders in the churches. Elders, plural, there's an S on the end. Um, and this is what they're supposed to be, and this is their qualifications. Um, and then somehow, a couple hundred years later, we've got super bishops, powerful, and we'll talk about how that turns out for everybody um, as, we, as we go along. But, but to be fair um, to the Catholic position, uh, you see fairly early on this movement towards what I think humans like is centralized power. That's what makes America unique, by the way. Happy Fourth of July was the idea to decentralize the power as much as you could. And as we have went on, we have tried to centralize it. It's funny, we want, oddly, Loki was somewhat right uh, when he said in the Avengers movie that you don't want freedom. You want somebody to rule you and control you. Because then you have an excuse, probably. I don't know. I, I mean, whatever it was Loki said. Uh, he was there to liberate them from freedom. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Protestants, however, they would view the second century's emerging bishop-centric episcopacy as a natural response to the circumstances they were in. And then they would also note the errors and the potential for errors that would later need correcting. So what happens when you create super bishops? And popes, you get corruption. Do you have corruption in a plurality of elders? You do, but the corruption can be localized to one body of believers. And the other elders, if I was committing adultery, it would be Ken and Rob and Daniel and Lee's responsibility to get rid of me. That would be part of their responsibility. I am not allowed to commit adultery. Uh, if I was stealing money, if I was bringing shame in some way to the church, the, the elders are supposed to deal with that. Um, and so, what ha- if you just keep knocking up the power level of, of people's position, um, you create scenarios where, oh, I don't know, the, you make the emperor come in and kiss your ring... I don't know if that's going to happen. Oh, wait, yes, it will. Yes, it will. That is the kind of thing that's going to happen. Um, And so the Protestant position, of which I am clearly one, uh, and so are we, the Protestant position is um, this form of church government of creating regional hierarchical bishops and cardinals and these systems that developed, and they weren't exactly the way they are now. That's another thing that happens current modern-day Catholics will say it was always this way. Well, actually, no. But you can see how it grew into what it became uh, in these early stages. But they needed some kind of government because they had left the, 
the Jewish synagogue, they needed a government, and the New Testament gives a government structure. And there was a fleshing out of how does this work as we bring in all these other cultures and all these other languages and all these other people groups. What are we going to do as as we go from a couple thousand in Jerusalem to a couple million? How do we do do this? Um, So that that is why this was so important. And then finally, the third anchor that was needed and was useful and something that I encourage all of you to look at a little more strongly is the creeds. The various creeds of the church are simple, and a creed simply means to sum up. Uh, To sum up and create little snippets uh, or memorizable uh, sections of belief that reflect what the Bible says. Um, in the next two lessons, you're gonna, we're going to see that a lot more closely. So um, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but the early creeds were primarily baptismal and that they were the summation of Christian faith discussed with a convert prior to baptism. You became a Christian. We're going to go over what that really means. And there were creeds, and a lot of the way that it worked was before you would be baptized in front of a group of people, there would be a series of questions that were asked. Do you believe in God the Father and His only Son, Jesus Christ? In fact, uh, I love the infant baptism ceremony of the Anglican Church. That's why Jennifer's back there smiling. When you read this ceremony that they use when they baptize babies, set aside the fact that I don't think paedo-baptism is correct, But when you read it, what you're hearing is this affirmation and declaration of faith, and it just goes down through a list. Um, And there was somebody, I won't mention who, but there was somebody that wanted me to do uh, an infant baptism, and I sent them that ceremony, and then they didn't want me to do the infant baptism. Uh, And I wasn't sure that I would do an infant baptism. That's a whole different discussion. But um, I gave them the ceremony, and they were like, uh... I'm making a commitment before God and my family that I'm going to raise my child this way and do this and do this and do this and I believe this and I believe that. Uh, okay. The, the, the strength of it, the commitment of it, rightfully gave this person second thoughts because they knew they just wanted a sweet little ceremony to feel better about themselves. And that is not what baptism is. Right? So anyway, the creeds, when you read them, uh, and there's various creeds, and some of them are great, and some of them are ee, weird, but the creeds uh, were intended to communicate Christian doctrine in a way, one, that you could memorize it, and two, um, well, let, let me just read here what, what we've got. The use of creeds were later used to combat heresy and to refine Christian doctrine. So that was the, that was the other thing, to sum up in a simple way what we believe, but then also there's these guys out here like Marcion, which I don't have him mentioned in here, but that Marcion basically said, the God of the Old Testament is ugly and mean, and the God of the New Testament is a pot-smoking hippie, and that's the one I like. He's full of love and grace, and the God in the Old Testament is mean and kills people. And so he went through and crafted his own scripture. He was brilliant. He was genius. 
He cut out any mention that Jesus made and any of the apostles made of the Old Testament, and he created this whole new scripture thing. And this kind of stuff is still going on today. But that's what he did. And, uh, and he was very influential. It's shocking how influential some of these people are. Maybe it's not shocking. And um, the Apostles' Creed was an example of, of uh, a refined creed that was combating various, ver- various heresies. For example, the Apostles' Creed specifically makes mention as go- of God as Father and the Maker of heaven and earth. That was to rebut Gnostic teachings that viewed all things physical as evil. There are all kinds of heresies that spring up, and they're actually read Colossians, read Galatians. That those books are dealing with heresies as well. But these heresies were threatening the church, so the creed helped create an anchor point um, for doctrine. Uh, and if God made heaven and earth then that means physical things are not bad. The affirmation that Christ was born, suffered, and died on the cross rebutted uh, the ascetic heresies that claimed Christ was just a pure spirit who seemed to be here. They had something similar to footprints in the sand. Everybody has read footprints in the sand. There's some places where there's only one set of footprints. That's where I carried you. We all know that. Uh, they believed that if you and Jesus were walking on the beach, there would also only be one set of footprints. And that's because Jesus didn't have feet. He didn't have a physical body. He was a spirit being that looked like he was here. But since physical stuff is bad, it's very similar to what the Gnostics were saying. There's no way that he was anything other than a pure embodiment of spirit. So the idea that he actually suffered on the cross was important the use of the word Christ rebutted Jews who rejected him as Messiah. The early baptismal creeds, along with the conciliar creeds that followed, function as apostolic summaries of the Christian faith. They were distilled from the broader teachings of Scripture. They guided the outward practices of the church, along with the foundational message of the New Testament and the work of the bishops. They allowed the church to know its own mind. So, first turning point, the fall of Jerusalem... The church is thrust out on its own. They needed something to go on, and God was there in the formation of the canon of Scripture. He's there in leading them in church government. He's there um, in helping them form the creeds, and we are going to see where that leads us next. And your last page, which I'm not going to go over, um, is uh, I just gave a couple different creeds the old Roman Creed, which eventually became the Apostles' Creed, is there. Also, Ignatius of Antioch, how early that is, uh, 110, um, very, very early in the second century. And you can read that and see very clearly um, it wasn't a council that came up with the belief uh, as Jesus. Uh, being God in the flesh. And that is actually important because there are a lot of groups, Jehovah Witnesses and a lot of other groups that will tell you it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea that we wound up with the Trinity or the Council of Chalcedon. And uh, even though those councils did function to define some of that stuff, which we are going to talk about, um, that's uh, 
the stuff was believed very, very early on. So, questions before we stop. Right at 7.30, I am not even sure how we pulled that off. 